welcome to Soda. I'm Jason McKenzie. I'm Sarah Kensler. And this, this is... is Soda. Soda. <laughs> that was really good, Sarah. You're really good, Jason. We are really good at podcasting. Together. Yep. <laughs> podcasting together. You and I are two peas in a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but enough about us. Actually, more about us. Sarah, what do more you about have? Us, no. <laughs> what do you have for us this week? I interviewed Aaron Sandsmark. Um, if you have been following the podcast since its inception, um, nigh just a few months prior, then you would know that I really love Aaron's work. Um, I have worked with her before in Altered Aesthetics, and she was amazing and wonderful, and her work is great. It was a spectacular experience, is what I will say, and I, I really hope that our listeners enjoy it and um, and then share it, and then check out her work, because it's awesome. Love it. Mm-hmm. What do you have? I'm going to be reviewing an exhibition that I saw at the Museum of Contemporary Art in San Diego called Dear 1968 featuring artist Sadie Barnett. Even though this is still technically in the beyond section, I was really blown away by this exhibition, and I think that our listeners would really enjoy being introduced to this body of work. And also, in the news, we're going to be talking about the New Orleans Museum of Arts, NOMA Plus, which is a mobile art museum where they have the goal of visiting every neighborhood in the metro area and how that applies to the Twin Cities. Mm-hmm. Or how it could apply to the Twin Cities. Really, what we're going to be talking about is accessibility, no? Generally, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But first, let's uh, take a listen to your interview. I'm really excited to hear it. I am really excited to share it with you. Let's go! So I'm here today with Aaron Sandsmark. Aaron is a painter and arts educator living in the Twin Cities. Originally from Fargo, North Dakota, she earned her BFA from the U of M and her MFA at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. Her work focuses on manipulation of her body as subject, resulting in beautiful and imposing large-scale paintings on unstretched canvas. Thank you so much for agreeing to let me interview you today. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) I don't know if you know this, but in Mm -hmm. the very first episode that Jason and I released of Soda, Mm -hmm. I mentioned that I was excited to interview you. (laughs) I did not know that. That makes me feel very, like, special. Thank you for that. Let's start with the basics. Tell us about yourself and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, so I grew up in Fargo, North Dakota, had an appetite for the arts right away with coloring on walls to my parents' chagrin. <laughs> really just loved everything about drawing, coloring, everything all the time, <laughs> art-related. I did not come from an arts background. My parents, or my mom is musical on her side, but no one was into the visual arts. So it was kind of blindsided by all of that. My parents just let me roll with it and they were really supportive Um, my mom was really into the into the PTA reflections program in um, elementary school and high school so I was in little art contests throughout elementary school when I got into high school I ended up making some work that I got first place in the in North Dakota for the PTA reflections program and placed somewhere nationally never that high up but Woohoo! And thus your successful (laughs) art career began. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I really didn't start painting until I started doing some landscapes in middle school and 
Then into high school, I started to paint portraits, but that was pretty much kind of self-taught. Once I learned how to draw portraits, it wasn't too hard of a transition to transfer it to paint. I just had to use the acrylic just right, or I don't know. It was it, it was interesting kind of manipulating that um, material, but kind of catapulted me to where I am now. And then it, it helped me into undergrad at the University of Minnesota. Once I got into there and got into their BFA program, I was pretty much exclusively doing portraiture of my friends and family. I was super into really big expressions and everybody doing really funny things on their faces and just playing around with that and seeing people's personalities through paint. On to grad school and now teaching so much art and loving it, uh, especially how I'm able to incorporate my love of color theory and history and things and technique. My nerdy art self comes out when I'm a teacher and I just get so excited. <laughs> There's always gonna be probably a portraiture lesson to break down facial structure and how to, you know, how to draw a nose or an eye and things that, you know, you don't think about, but just how to use your eye. Pretty much everything comes from observational drawing and that's a big part of what I teach. If I'm able to teach a more classic type of setup of a drawing and painting class or a portraiture class or whatever, observation and learning how to be patient with that um, with my students is a huge part of that. I'm really curious about the first experience where like, okay, you decide. Yeah. You're going to paint yourself yeah. naked and yeah. then you pose yeah. and take pictures yes, of yourself. I mm -hmm. how, how, how did that process go? Well, I was in the bathroom of my apartment my senior <laughs> year and I had my phone set up on a timer in the bathroom on a little, like on books or whatever I had in the bathroom. I like set it up. I took a few different, I had an idea of me and it was kind of a profile view of me and I didn't include my face in it. And that wasn't super intentional. It was more, and maybe it was, I didn't really think about it that much. Um, I included like my lips and down, but I didn't include my full face mm -hmm. at that time. But I showed my hands kind of swinging back and um, my chin up and looking forward. And it was very, like a very open pose. It was very like... To me, powerful. To me, it was it was very kind of like the spread out, like, here I am mm -hmm. type of uh, pose. But I wanted to, I think at that point also, I knew that my body could be kind of stretched out then too. It still looked like me and, you know, I had rolls and there was cellulite on my butt and my mole on my butt and all this stuff that I painted in. But it was also, you know, not as squishy, quote unquote, as things have become. Um, I hadn't embraced maybe as much of my roles and things, but it was kind of a nice segue. But I don't know. I just, like, I didn't do a lot of sketching. I didn't do a lot of any of that. I just was like, well, I'm going to do it now. <laughs> and I, the first full nude painting I did that was a direct representation of myself was a seven by six foot painting. I didn't start small. I was just like, well, I'm painting at this size anyway, so I'm going to just do it. And I think it really worked in my favor in that painting. I still really like. So you, as a student at MCAD then, yeah. you were subject to crits yes. in class. What were... Always crits. Always <laughs> always crits. crits always crits. Amen. Yeah. What were some of the reactions that you encountered and, and how did you... Did you know what to expect? I didn't. Well, in undergrad, I was really the only one painting the way I was painting. More realistic... The first two paintings I did were smaller because I think I was a little nervous to show them what I was doing, which I got criticism for, which was fine. <laughs> that they were a little bit small and they looked safe. They looked whatever, whatever. 
I digress. That's, that's some solid crit. It, like, I mean, oh, it was, and it was true. I yeah. look at those paintings, I don't like them because they were safe and boring and yeah. blah. Necessary. Necessary. But right after that, I was just like, okay, well, I'm going to go back to the scale I'm used to, these large paintings. And I made three, a series of three paintings that I was looking directly at the students or audience or whatever. In my case, students, because we were in crit and some of my classmates. And I got comments that were good for the most part. There was a comment from a professor that asked me if maybe it was pornographic because I was grasping at butt cheeks and lifting them. (laughs) But it was an interesting question, Mm -hmm. and I totally disagreed with him. I knew where he was coming from because the look in my eyes in that image was not so much, you know, aggressive and confrontational, but more like I'm here and not ashamed of it. And I think he sensed a, a sensuality in the paintings that I think made him uncomfortable as my professor but made me totally not uncomfortable (laughs) I was told I was completely fine with him seeing sensuality and sexuality in those paintings because that always exists within my body even if the my breasts and my butt and everything isn't an innately sexual in themselves there's always going to be that connotation and I'm and I use them sexually Sometimes, so why wouldn't I exude some of that confidence or some of that part of myself in my paintings as well? I don't think one is devoid of the other. I think they can work together, but just because I'm being naked in a in a painting and in a frame doesn't mean it's innately pornographic. It can just be powerful, maybe sexual, but it doesn't have to be. It can also just be me in my body looking at you. I feel like there's a lot wrapped up in the idea that, that anybody aside from a professor would think that a, a full frontal naked portrait of the artist Mm -hmm. done by her is in any way pornographic. I know. Cause when I think porn, I think individuals that have, you mean amateur or professional, uh, making something for potentially someone else, someone else's pleasure. And I'm making work for myself. And then I love that other people enjoy it too. (laughs) But my primary concern is that I like what I'm making. And I think that's what most artists should be doing and not worrying about the others around them. I know that I make work that makes people, you know, happy, especially women who look like me or women in general, I get the most positive responses from. And I love the fact that I make work that makes women respond positively because that. I, I mean, men matter in a lot of ways. However, I'm okay with my work being more female-centric um, and not necessarily for everybody. Not everybody has to like it. I think you can see the merits in my work, but if you don't want it in your house, that's fine. It's also fine. This lady over here might want it in her house, and that's, that's right. and I'd rather uh, the person that wants it take it, <laughs> if that makes sense. Older, better um, contrast, and but all that comes out in my own brain for to a certain extent they look realistic and the renderings are from photographs but what I do to them and what makes them interesting is done more just as I flow um in the studio which I hate that word flow it's just like when I'm adding color not thinking about it that's when a lot of interesting things happen most of your portraits up to this point too have been um just from like the neck down, mm-hmm. some identifying features like your hair yep. will make it into yep. like the top of the canvas mm-hmm. or something. But at this point, it's been a real focus on like from your shoulder yep. just just past your pubic bone. Mm-hmm. 
Did you do that for yourself, for your audience? I think I got bored of painting my face to a certain extent. To just a little bit of it. I painted my face a lot. I painted my face so many times. Um, I could do it without looking, pretty much. There was something about taking away my face that kind of made it almost harder for me to convince people that it wasn't just a sexual painting for away my identity a little bit. So it kind of removed of the work, but it, it stayed confrontational because of the scale being large and of just seeing a body just be existing and um, being okay in its weird contortions that I am really excited that I move it into when I photograph myself. And I think I've, what a big part of my thesis was, was just really thinking about the body and how there's more than just our face that I, that is part of our identity. My whole body is part of my body and not just my face. Um, and so growing up hearing that I have a pretty face was never, uh, that was never lost on me. Like what that actually meant, that backhanded, terrible compliment that, um, larger women hear all the time because it totally negates the body that they're also existing in (laughs) and it ignores it. And it just, it simplifies their existence. I needed to do was just really focus in on my body and see it and really um, analyze it and break it down and not feel, I felt connected to it, but I also, I liked having the separation from it because I'm just painting it in a way that I don't have an emotional connection to it in the same way. Like when you're looking at yourself, it's different than when I'm painting myself. But when I'm finished, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm like super into these curves and how this person looks. I think they look beautiful. It's a little different than when you're looking at yourself. It's harder to get to that point. But it's harder to be so critical. <laughs> yes. But when I'm able to have in this process of painting myself, looking at myself constantly, I just have become very comfortable and seeing my naked body in general. Um, and I think okay with using, like seeing my breasts as like a, or in my butt and my thighs and my stomach as part of my identity in a lot of ways. And they don't define me, but it is part of my life that defines me, if that makes sense. But you're negating the disassociation yeah. that I think a lot of women with larger bodies experience yeah. because of the yeah this idea that it's just from the neck up yeah because nobody wants to comment on from the neck down. Yeah, because people feel uncomfortable yeah. with, but, and, and you shouldn't be, as people, we shouldn't be commenting on other people's bodies because we don't know where someone's at with them. We shouldn't, no one should be coming and telling me about my breasts and telling me all about them. It's like, yes, I look at them all the time. <laughs> Unless you're my partner, you really can't be making any comments yes. about sexually or otherwise about my body. You have to be a very, very close friend or a sexual partner. That is what needs to be. Like, that is pretty much the only things where that's okay. If you're a stranger coming up to me and talking to me about my butt, it's not okay. Please don't. Please don't. No, thanks, It happens to... Yeah. Well, a lot of women, most women, that they get comments that are unwanted, but all the time. It's so delightful. Um, anyway. Yeah. But it's just, I think I really, especially centering in on um, my breasts, my stomach, and my butt, and my thighs, those are the parts of me that are the most sexualized outside of my own context. They're the most sexualized in the world to me by other people. So I think focusing in on those and kind of taking away some of 
the hypersexuality of it and just putting them on a canvas naked, just moving around and being maybe not in the most sexy positions with my rolls showing or my, you know, my back contorting in some kind of strange way um, was, I was kind of able to like see myself, but also kind of negate some of that hypersexuality that has been inundated at me for so long just because of the size and shape of my body if that makes I have been asked like why do you think that do you do you need to paint yourself naked and do you need to that's an interesting question and then I just explain where it's coming from from a standpoint of feminine power and also my own personal relationship with my body and why it was important for me to to take these steps and feel comfortable with myself you know not all that translated (laughs) but I was talking to someone that you know is from a very different generation and I understand the uh, hesitation but it's okay no one has ever said no at least Mm -hmm. that that's mattered to me in my life I've had people say ask me if I'm conceited (laughs) this wasn't my family members but I've had someone ask me if I was conceited once they once they found out that the that it was you yeah yeah interesting and uh I think I it was a man but I told him aren't we all conceited or aren't we all full of ourselves and then he's like you're right (laughs) okay okay (laughs) but I mean we're always the hero of our own story right we're always gonna be the center of our own universe and this work isn't about that however if you want to make it about that sure but I'm the body I look at all the time so why wouldn't I paint myself the most there's a lot of artists that have done that their whole lives Van Gogh painted himself constantly. Joan Semmel is an artist that has painted herself naked through her aging body from the 70s till now, and she's just kind of documented how her body has changed over time, and I think that's so amazing. And, you know, the work has changed so much because she's talking about aging and how, you know, her skin has sagged or changed over time and become thinner. And, you know, there are things... There's something to be said about documentation of your form, I think, to a certain extent. I think it would benefit a lot of people, even if you didn't display it to the world like I do, to just look at yourself in the mirror and maybe sketch yourself a little bit. And I think, even if you're not an artist, I think it's a very healthy act. You know, it's not being conceited. It's not. It's, it's, not, being, right, it's, it's not conceited. It's not conceited. I think it's just actually being able to look at yourself thoughtfully. I think it's a really important thing that we need to be able to do. So, but yeah, that was a really interesting comment. Are you conceited? Are That's, you really full of yourself? It's interesting or? that you're, that here you are painting yourself and, and the first thought that someone has about you as a woman painting yourself is, wow, she yeah. must be real full of herself. Yeah. But like, what about the many historical, um, kind of heroic artist self-portraits that we've had in our history? Mm-hmm. Aren't they completely conceited? Like what, talking about, you know, the triumphant heroic male artist and his model mistress like this whole narrative but I've taken away this heroic artist and I've put in myself as a model and artist and I'm acting in both roles and I don't think there's anything wrong with that and it doesn't mean I'm conceited it just means that I'm interested in what my body potentially has to offer in a public space. And that's okay and also powerful. Yeah, but some people have a hard time with it. Maybe <laughs> they might be a little intimidated. That is also okay. <laughs> yes. Um, I, fe- I felt a lot of support in Minnesota, um, especially in comparison to being in Fargo. Not like I was really ever super into the art community, right? I went, I left 
high school went right to Minneapolis, but just the, it's a large art community here for being such, it's kind of an, it's like this isolated city away from a lot of the rest of the country, not because we don't know what's going on, but just the way the art world is set up. There's not a lot of big cities that are right next to us until Chicago, and that's, you know, not close. Right. Two states away, right? So there's this weird little hub in Minnesota with artists, and I think there's a lot of support for other artists, for for artists. It's kind of this circular support system that really benefits itself from art students leaving the U or MCAT or other schools around the state, coming to Minneapolis or St. Paul and finding their own little communities. I think it's a really supportive space. There's so many grants and fellowships around here that advocate for young and emerging artists. So I think it's a really great place for someone to start out in, especially because it's not so expensive. Uh Young artists moving right to New York or LA, I think it can be beneficial, but it also can eat you up faster. So the smaller but really well-rounded community of Minneapolis, I think is a great place to start out. And you can have your whole career here, but it's, I think, a great breeding ground for artists because there's a lot of support through the state and through different institutions that benefit emerging artists and can really foster a lot of great ideas. If anybody was interested in seeing some of your works, where can they find you online? They can find me at erinsandsmark.com. It's pretty solid. Um, or at on Instagram, at erinsandsmark. So just my name. I update my Instagram the most. And I have, you know, on my stories, I have uh, studio shots and in-progress things. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that's where I share my art progress and what I'm doing more in my personal studio life. Do you take commissions? I do. I do. I love uh, making work for people and I have a lot of experience painting portraits. I've done commissions for my family quite a bit, doing landscapes and portraits for them. So yeah, I'm always down to do something for other people. And thank you so much again. This has been wonderful. It's been awesome. Thanks. So this week, I'm going to review an exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art in San Diego, uh, which featured artist Sadie Barnett. It is titled Dear 1968, and the title is based off of one of her drawings that is featured prominently in the exhibition that says, Dear 1968, Love 1984. And She is referencing 1968 because that is the year that her father joined the Black Panther Party. And 1984 is the year in which she was born. And so she was able to obtain a 500-page file from the FBI through the Freedom of Information Act that was kept on her father um, because of his involvement in the Black Panther Party beginning in 1968. Um, Sadie has this very vibrant aesthetic and especially paired with her view of the 80s when she was growing up. So she's applying a lot of bright pink paint. She has a lot of rhinestone stickers, uh, plastic pink toys. Um, She makes wallpaper out of a childhood photo that has been superimposed with this big blocky pink shape over the face. Uh, So you can actually go through the exhibition and she has made reproductions of the actual documents. So these documents say things like 
tracking her father's movements, um, arrest papers, mugshot. Um, she also includes some uh, two very striking portraits of her father, one in his army uniform because he was drafted into the Vietnam War. And then soon after, she has a picture of him uh, when he joined the Black Panther Party in a beret and a leather jacket. And these are right next to each other. Um, as well as on another wall, she has a salon-style hanging of other family photos that she has cut out and collaged onto sequin, sparkly, iridescent papers that are uh, rainbow-esque and, and bright pink. And so for what struck me about this exhibition is that obviously she's looking at her father from this childhood perspective. You know, she's I think that she's associating memories of her father through the lens of her experience as a little girl, which, which also goes in hand in hand with this 80s aesthetic and this pinkness and brightness and, and kitschiness. And kind of more as she's become an adult, she's learned these things about her father and is kind of applying this perspective of her father and the you know, difficult things that he went through that she's now realizing as an adult, but kind of looking back through her lens as a child. That sounds like, wait, so is it, is the whole exhibition um, like an, a note from her to her father, or am I taking that too literally? Um, I would think it's a little too literal. Um, so, the exhibition is mainly presenting these documents, but she does it in a very fun but critical kind of a way, such as one way she displayed them is they're all reproduced on like a white foam core that has a bright pink backing. However, when it's hung on the wall, you don't actually see the pink, but it's reflecting off the white paint of the gallery surface so it's kind of backlighting it with bright pink and she spray painted these with black and pink spray paint so it's kind of looking at this really close surveillance of her dad and these documents of the things that he went through but also kind of maybe a, a little bit mocking maybe a little reclaiming you know now she's reflecting on how he was treated in the past and probably comparing it to the state of the state of America right now. Is she what? What does she? Um, what does she accomplish as far as what the viewer is feeling by juxtaposing, you know, what what would be like kind of a dark period in her father's life with the very bright neon. 80s aesthetic I mean is she is she changing the way like or is she presenting her father in a way that is like one-sided or are you as a viewer allowed to think about him both from his perspective and her perspective are you are you meant to think of it as like a social um commentary or just a just a comparison between the darkness of the Vietnam Nam War versus like the explosion of color and jazzercise that was the 80s? Uh, the Vietnam War wasn't really 
highlighted. It's more about his involvement in the Black Panther Party. Um, she just includes a photo of him um, in the Vietnam, in his uniform for the Vietnam War. Um, I think kind of as a symbol to he served his country, and then years later he was highly surveilled and, you know, persecuted by the country. By that same country, sure. Um, yeah. And so... For me, the the biggest kind of accomplishment that I, you know, that affected me personally was I think it, you know, it kind of humanizes the the activist. You know, you see all these documents of, you know, the the government surveilling him and uh, arresting him and things, and you see him through this this lens of of innocence of of this, his, his daughter. And so I think it's uh, a kind of a remembrance of, like, I think it's her reconciling her view of her dad and her memories with his past, her past and his past. And I think it also then, you know, makes you think about um, who are these people that are being, surveilled by the government and being, you know, persecuted by the government in their activism. You know, a lot of them are just somebody's dad. So does it, does the show more highlight, the show, does it more highlight the surveillance of this man who was also her father or does it just highlight, um, how he, how he looked through the eyes of his child? I would, I would say both. I mean, she, I, I think that there is also a bit of unawareness because mm-hmm. I, I get the sense that as a child, she, you know, either didn't know all of this or she didn't really understand all of this. And so as an adult, when she's looking back, she's, you know, seeing through this layer of pink and it also shows historically um, a sense of how members of the Black Panther Party were seen, like, through the eyes of the government. Mm -hmm. So she's seeing her dad through her childhood memories and comparing it to, you know, if this file of only, you know, quote-unquote illegal things. So, like, I'm just curious, um, as somebody who didn't grow up in the eighties. What did, how, how were you interpreting this? I mean, were you, was it consistent with your understanding of the eighties and, um, the black Panthers? Did it seem weird or fitting or, um, just interesting to see images of, of her father as a black Panther up against like neon pink? Of course, that the that was an interesting juxtaposition. I don't think you expect to see a Black Panther Party portrait with something Hello Kitty and sparkly. But I resonated with the aesthetic a lot because the rhinestone stickers and the pink plastic toys and the bright colors. I mean, I grew up with that too. So those things were still around and kicking they in are the still early nineties. So mm-hmm. yeah. So I, I recognized these things immediately and, you know, it made me think about my, you know, my own family and kind of, 
um, how if you put something on paper, how someone might see a member of my family versus how I feel about them or how my memories, uh, you know, have me view um, a member of my family from the past. Mm-hmm. Was it like a full, is it just one gallery or is it a couple galleries? It was one gallery. Yeah, I would say um, maybe like 30 by 40. Okay. Okay. So you you could walk in and get a, you know, get a sense of what you're about to look at. Uh, one thing that I really liked that she did was she kind of made it uh, the space into a nod towards a domestic space. Like I said, she, she made this corner where the walls were made of this wallpaper where she had taken a childhood photo and put like a big block of color over the face and, and, uh, reproduced it in a in a repeating pattern so from far away it just looks like some kind of abstract wallpaper but putting up the wallpaper and then hanging pieces on top of it makes it feel home like home and then also as you get closer you realize it's one of those grainy childhood photos you know probably taken with a film camera and the other wall with the salon style uh, collages that feature other members of the family and also makes it feel a little more of a nod to a domestic space. Was there anything, any didactics or any, um, any descriptions in the show or around the show that talked about like what her dad thought about all this? Uh, no, not anything that was prevalent. The didactic was the wall text was very, introductory and I think most of the didactics mostly were just uh piece information um they were just yeah well uh labels rather than didactics that's too bad I would love to know what he what his interpretation of this is yeah just maybe prompt some further research and I of course have linked the exhibition to our show notes And you can check out some visuals and more information there. Cool. I will be checking it out for sure. All right. So this week in the news, we're talking about the New Orleans Museum of Art, or NOMA, has a new mobile museum called NOMA Plus. This little museum um, is a trailer that can be hooked up to the back of a vehicle, And it is a cube-like structure that can unfold to have two awnings and an accessible ramp. Uh, There is storage shelves, like archival storage, as in the the main part of of this museum. And uh, people can interact with the art, set it up, enjoy it. Um, There is lighting for it. There are... Uh, interactive areas on the awnings where you could sit and there is also an art supply cart so you can interact and they have a goal of going to every neighborhood in the metro area that is so super cool there's a really cute video of the the art trailer like opening up and it's so cute it's like a little tiny house except it only houses art and people and art experiences. And it's solar powered. Did you know that? That's so awesome. That is really awesome. And there's a um, handicap ramp. From... 
yes, I am super excited Sorry. about all of these things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, just to quote from the hyperallergic article, which we have cited in our show notes, um, art museums have historically been tailored to the white and wealthy. Determined by their location within a city, the demographics of the museum staff, the art on display are predominantly white male artists that created it. But what about the design of the museum building itself? How can a museum's physicality influence the way people engage with it? Of course, when I saw this, I immediately thought about, oh, would this be an applicable model for the Twin Cities? Thoughts? I think so. Um, I mean, it would be really nice to... It's, it's always a good idea to try and bring art out of the museum. There's... I think that there's something that happens or something that I've seen in in programs that I've been involved in that happens when you remove art from the context of a historically white dominated like like subtly not so subtly existing financial and social hierarchy that a lot of museum buildings represent um, and and I think the more I read about where museums are going with accessibility, diversity, inclusion. Part of that conversation is talking about the physicality of the museum itself. And does does the architecture, does the building itself actually pre- prevent people from coming in? Does it present its own accessibility challenge? And I think it does. If you are from a community that you don't feel is represented, that no one, you know, the an institution has never made an effort to reach out to your community to give you some kind of introduction and welcoming. Um, and also, if you don't feel like you would find anything that you identify with represented in that museum, how that would really be preventative from any want of an experience like that. And it might even be to not only might these communities feel that there's that there's like actively feel that there's nothing for them or they have no way to connect with the museum. They might not actually have considered it as a place of connection. Like it's not even a, it's not even a thought because, because if you're looking at the facade of a early 20th century museum, like um, the Cleveland is actually a really good example. Um, It was, it was uh, designed by the same architecture firm, Mead McKim and White that designed the Minneapolis Institute of Art. And so there are big columns and it's very Romanesque and very classical and it's just imposing. And so just to look at it from the outside, you might be like, oh, wow, nope. And just keep on walking Um, because it seems so out of place in, in many ways to a lot of different communities. It seems like a class distinction. It's, it very much was you know, meant like to what? be. Yes. Yeah. The, you know, there have been barriers across generations, you know. So it, Mia is actually a really good example just of a longstanding institution um, that that has in many social ways um, presented barriers to the community within which it lives <clears throat> the community around it has continued to develop but built the building Mia the building remains the same um, and now it just looks like a huge juxtaposition and there has been this generational separation 
that has informed the community. Um, and what I mean by that is if you, if you look back at, at images of um, say the first day that, that Mia opened to the public, it's all, it's all white people. <laughs> it's all, I mean, there's hundreds of them there. Um, but it just, it just speaks to what the museum was, who rather who the museum was supposed to be for. Um, I, we're getting a little bit away from, from the topic, but I mean, accessibility is, is a complex issue that is, is rooted in the history of the development of the 20th and 21st century American museum institution. I was also kind of thinking about, you know, on these alternative ways that museums can manifest in communities. And I was thinking about this particular model of having this, this trailer and thinking about the Twin Cities, I automatically thought of, well, would it be good in snow? Um, <laughs> Just drag it behind a snowmobile. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, put some sleighs on it. Absolutely. Uh, but then, you know, I was kind of thinking about how, you know, how could something like that be in the, the harsh tundra north? But then I, you know, thought about Minnesota does have pretty good uh arts outreach, uh, like the art shanties, you know, Mm -hmm. that's capitalizing Mm -hmm. on our climate and putting art out into the public at the same time. Yeah. And it, and it capitalizes on Minnesota's suburbs. Oh gosh. Yes. And it capitalizes on (laughs) Minnesotans need to, uh, see other things that are very Minnesotan and it is extremely Minnesotan to have an art shanty in the middle of winter sitting on a lake that people go and visit like that combination of elements is just so minnesotan to me hey this whole podcast is about minnesota things mostly and the beyond and the beyond i mean there is the beyond too it's the beyond is very important but i feel like we're we're hitting minnesota real hard today great so do you have any other uh ideas or anything any resources that you know of that minnesota does have to promote outreach or any ideas on other things that well could be implemented i mean i you know i'm very familiar with mia um their entrance to the museum to the permanent collection is free every day that they're open um there's also this really great program called art adventure it is a a completely free program that uh mia runs where Parents from different school districts can volunteer. They come in. They are taught by Mia docents about specific aspects of the collection. The parents then bring like a little kit of those pieces to their kids in school. They present to the kids in school. And then the kids in turn come to the museum and are guided around and can see those same pieces in person. Um, The whole thing is completely free. um, And... There's even a fund uh, set aside by the Friends of the Institute to help schools pay for bus uh, costs, which is usually the only cost incurred by the schools that come in. So that's that's one thing that I can think of. I know that the Minneapolis Park Board does a lot of really good work, especially in the summer, um, working with museums in the area to bring art and art activities to the various parks. Um, so you can always check that out, too. Um yeah, I mean, it's just that's just off the top of my head. I'm sure there are more. If anybody out there has any ideas of um, any anything else that I've missed, please let us know. We would really love to um, hear about it, learn about it, and uh, spread the word about those things. It's pretty great. 
Yeah, we don't we don't just want to do interviews and reviews. We also want to talk about resources in Minnesota and spread the word on how to make more art prevalent in in all of the Twin Cities and beyond. And beyond. And it would be nice to hear from you, dear listener, what your ideas are. Not just what exists, but what you think should exist. Please let us know. So to listeners, uh, if you want to check out our show notes, which have links to the various things that we have referenced in this episode, uh, you can find it at sodapodcast.blog. If you want to invite us to any upcoming events, tell us any opinions, etc., you can reach out to us at stateoftheartspod at gmail.com. That's also our Instagram handle, and we are also on Facebook, and you can search us at State of the Arts Podcast. It would really, really help us out if you guys could review us on iTunes. Um, It would get the word out to more people, and we would um, foster more conversation between us and the rest of you listening. So that would really be great. Please, please review us on iTunes. We also do have a Patreon, um, if you would be so kind as to consider donating. Um, Surprisingly, producing a podcast does take a fair amount of funds, and even though Jason and I love doing it, we are doing it with all the love in our hearts and the ambition in our brains, it does take some cash. So um, if you if you would consider sending a few bucks our way, that would be super great. And as always, our music has been provided by the wonderful, the unmatched, the Von Tramps. A recording. Recording gonna record some stuff now it's time for news and it's gonna be so great oh my god (laughs) the news it's coming at your face like a freight train coming at your face that would hurt really bad (laughs) people can't see this but i have been interpreting dancing this whole time and people are like why? Why does that Why? matter? Why? And just to let you know, Sarah and I video chat while we're recording. Yeah. So no, we, we sure fucking there do. is act- like my movements make sense to her, but just know that I I was doing a really good job. There's a lot of there's a lot of hand flowing and like arm reaching into the into the skies, into the nothingness, into the beyond where Jason currently is, which is only beyond to me. <laughs> really, beyond is only beyond in context, right? God, Sarah, that's so beyond. You're so beyond. Your face is so beyond.